Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We are thinking about Christmas and God coming into our world through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, and the lead up to the Christmas day. Uh, Jesse's going to be bringing us a message to us in a few moments. I want to read for you the passage before we pray though this morning in light of, um, yeah, just to refresh us. The significance of that moment is from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, reading the first 20 verses. If you've got a Bible there, all will have it on the screen. Let me read it for you. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Curius was governor of Syria. And everyone went their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring good news that will cause great joy for all the the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed that the shepherds said to them what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. All right, morning everyone. Hello. Let's pray again before we get into it. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, we ask that you might speak to us. Help us to take it all in. May we be struck by how awesome it is that Jesus was born into the world. May you help us to see that it means what it means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we know if someone is great? Well, this week I spent some time researching the greatest man in history, at least He's one of the greatest, according to Wikipedia. The guy was born about 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. 
and went by the name of Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, the guy in our passage today. And he was great. Here's his portfolio. Name, Caesar Augustus. Literal meaning, the supreme, majestic, exalted one. A title only given to gods. Family connections. Great nephew and adopted heir to the title, assets, and army of Julius Caesar, the most well-known general in history. Occupation. Commanding general of the Roman legions, the world's most powerful military force. Achievements. Conqueror, founder, and first emperor of the Roman Empire, which he expanded to double its original size throughout his reign. Community involvement laid the foundations for the entire world to experience relative stability and peace for almost 200 years. Extras, oh yes, the name of the month of August is named after him. I can see why people have labelled him as one of the greatest. He seems to tick all the criteria. He's rich, famous, powerful, successful, influential, popular, important. But even though Caesar Augustus was all these things, most of us have never heard of him. For all his greatness, his life and achievements really don't affect us. But not all greatness is like that. As we take a look at our passage today, we'll see that there was a greater man than Caesar Augustus. Born at about the same time in history, a man whose great life does actually impact us today. This man was Jesus, and he was also great, but he was great in a totally different way. So while the story of Jesus' birth is familiar to most of us, this moment in history and all that followed has a profound impact on us today. So how was Jesus great? And how is his greatness different to the greatness of Caesar Augustus? And what does this have to do with us? Let's open our Bibles and see. So we begin in our passage today by seeing that greatness starts with humble beginnings. Let's read Luke 2 from verses 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Here we see Jesus... The greatest person in history start with the humblest of beginnings. After setting the scene, we find ourselves introduced to Joseph in verse 4, a pretty average bloke from a backwater village which was called Nazareth. This village would barely have made up a couple hundred people. It would have been a pretty similar to the size of our church. It's hard enough for me to explain where I'm from, and I'm from Ballina, a town of about 40,000 people. You can imagine Joseph coming to Bethlehem and trying to explain to people where he's from. People would have had no idea. But because of the decree and Joseph being the line of David, he has to make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 
And we're told he takes Mary with him. Now, we should be a little bit concerned here. Mary's in her final days of pregnancy. And Bethlehem isn't just down the road. It's not like Mary could call on an Uber to drop her five minutes up the road. It was a 150k journey across dry desert, and they're going to do it walking. Now, I've never been pregnant, but there's a lot of mothers out there who have been. Can you imagine doing this? <laughs> and dads, can you imagine even suggesting such a thing? Hey, honey, I know you're pregnant and all, but I was wondering if you'd be up for a 150k hike through a desert just before you give birth. I presume none of you have tried that. But you get the picture. This is nuts. It's 150Ks on foot while pregnant. And then, after all this, they make it to their destination. But Joseph's forgotten to book the hotel. And Mary's about to give birth. The lodging place was full. And there certainly weren't any hospitals around in those days. So there's nowhere to go but the pigsty where there's a stinking manger, probably got all kinds of old animal food stuck on it. It's revolting, probably even horrifying for us post-COVID germaphobes. How did God let this happen? Surely there was a better way. The greatest person in history, God's very own son, born to a teenage girl from a no-name village, born in a stinking, filthy manger. Surely God could have chosen someone else. Why choose Mary when a queen could have done a much better job? Or at the very least, God could have chosen someone from Bethlehem to save the family the insane journey and make sure they at least had a spot in the inn before it was full. Well, the answer to these questions is that God was in control the entire time and actually chose this way as the best way for Jesus to be born. We know that God had already planned for Jesus, his son, to be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah spoke of this over 700 years ago uh, before the birth, and it's recorded in Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. But if God planned for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, why doesn't he go for an easy option by choosing a woman who already lived there. It's because this scenario demonstrates his power and his grace as he calls on an unexpected people to achieve his purposes, from the greatest to the least. In verse 1, we see his power displayed over Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man alive, using him to ensure that Jesus was born in the right place. And his choice of Mary shows that he's willing to call upon anyone, no matter how insignificant even preferring humble and lowly people, as we'll see later on. God's choice of Mary had nothing to do with the qualities or the goodness or the holiness of Mary, and everything to do with God and the way he works in power and in grace. It's incredible that God planned this insane beginning for his son, and it's so awesome that he's willing to use anyone to achieve his purposes. But come back to the passage with me and notice how simple and short the account of this birth is. If you zoned out for a verse or two while we're reading it, you might have missed it. The birth of Jesus is given hardly any airtime, and the journey there is barely even mentioned. 
Where's the exciting details and the dramatic close calls? Even though the movie The Nativity Story gives over a hundred and minutes to the journey, Luke in this passage barely gives it a verse. Why? Their answer is again that God planned this all to happen, and he made it happen just like that. There's no need to write about the close calls or the near-disaster stories because God always had it under control. Nothing was ever going to go wrong. Luke keeps it short to stress the destination of the birth, not the drama of the journey. What's most important in these verses is the destination. If Jesus was to be the great man prophesied about in Micah, he had to be born in Bethlehem, and God makes it happen. But if God can make anything happen by using anyone he chooses, why does Jesus end up in a filthy manger, in a town that doesn't even recognize him? Why did God choose such a humble beginning for his son, if he could have had it any way he chose? The answer is greatness. God chooses a humble beginning to redefine what and who we see as great. The greatness of Caesar Augustus was defined by his riches, fame, wealth, power, success, influence, popularity, importance. The greatness of Jesus, the long-awaited king and God's chosen Messiah, was defined by none of these, becoming nothing by assuming a humble and lowly position. Take a look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. There's no great welcome, or feast, or celebration. Instead, he's born in a place that doesn't recognize him, born in a stinking animal trough, born to a teenage girl of average social status who came from a no-name village. God's son, the promised king and saviour of God's people, born in a filthy, dirty manger. Nothing about it shouts greatness. Nothing about it seems important. It's a lowly, humble beginning. And yet God, in his power and his grace, designed it so. By now, we're beginning to get a picture of what God sees as true greatness. It's different to the greatness of Caesar Augustus, and it's probably pretty different to what we think greatness is too. But Mary knew of it when she sang in the previous chapter in verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Later on in his life, Jesus teaches his disciples about this great reversal, as we see in Mark 10, 42 to 45. In this passage, Jesus says to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over, lorded over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' arrival, while humble, was characterized by a different kind of greatness. His lack of displaying wealth and popularity and importance and influence, all that Caesar modeled, 
And his obvious humility and lowliness is the very thing that made him great in God's eyes. His greatness wasn't found in lording it over others. Instead, it was found in his humble beginning. So now that we've seen what true greatness looks like, and I've had a look at the reasons why Jesus' life started humbly, we have to ask the question, what's it all for? Is the birth of Jesus simply a statement that God is powerful and gracious? Or is there something that's in it for us? Let's return to our Bibles and find out. Read with me in verses 8 to 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Here we see the greatness of Jesus revealed to and revealed for a humble audience. In these verses, we're taken away from the manger in Bethlehem and are transported to a field nearby. Suddenly we've gone from the crowds and the light of the town of Bethlehem to the quiet darkness of the open fields. And we're introduced to some shepherds who were told are tending their flocks in the middle of the night. Now, these shepherds aren't the kind of people you call to mind their kids on date night because they aren't the kind-hearted, lamb-nurturing guys that we think they are. Shepherds back then were best known for nicking people's stuff. They had a nasty habit of wandering about your neighborhood stealing your stuff, and then disappearing off into the wild so you had no hope of getting it back. You wouldn't trust a shepherd. They were outcasts, considered just dodgy people. But as these shepherds are standing out about, half looking after the sheep, half thinking about what to steal next, God entrusts them with the most important announcement that has ever been heard, the good news of his son. As the shepherds are keeping watch, an angel of the Lord appears to them, and shining all around them, is, there is the terrifying, holy, and righteous glory of the Lord. Having the glory of the Lord surround you probably felt a bit like the police turning up on your doorstep when you knew you'd done something wrong. And the shepherds at this point almost wet their pants. They were guilty, all right, and here they were face to face with the presence of the all-knowing, all-powerful judge of the world. What's crazy is they aren't even judged. They aren't questioned about the suspicious Gucci sandals they're wearing or the solid gold staves. Instead, they're told not to fear. What's even more crazy is that the angel then goes on to entrust them to the most precious, most important message that ever, that's ever been announced. As you read in verses 10 to 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. The shepherds weren't being judged for their unworthiness. They were being chosen as an audience to news that that, that would be for all people and would bring great joy to all who heard it. 
But why did God choose shepherds to be the audience? And why is this good news? Why are the first people that God chooses thieves? Everyone knew shepherds were bad people. Everyone knew they were thieves and outcasts and untrustworthy. And yet God chooses them to be the audience of the most important news in all of history, that the Savior had come and the King was here. God chooses the shepherds because of their bad reputation, not because of some achievement or quality of their own. The shepherds were flawed and sinful people in need of a Savior. And it's to those who are in need that a Savior comes. Jesus never came for the healthy, but the sick. He didn't come for the righteous or the blameless, but the unrighteous and the flawed. God doesn't choose the most powerful or rich or popular or most put together or most successful or even the most influential, the most important. He chooses the lowly, the broken, the flawed, and the damaged to be witnesses of his announcement. It's the unsuccessful and the unimportant, the lowly and the humble, that Jesus reaches out to. No success, no achievement, no amount of work or service or kindness or faithfulness will get us any credit before God. It's only when we embrace our unworthiness, our brokenness, our failures and our flaws, that we can begin to realize that we need to receive the beautiful good news. Only when we're at our lowest can we truly experience the joy and the peace that's found in the good news of Christ. Jesus came for people like us, because we're just like the shepherds. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We all need someone to step in for us, to take the punishment of death and separation from God that we deserve. So as we come to the realization that God chose the shepherds as his first audience, we're shown that all people, even the worst sinners, can be sure that this good news is also for them. But what is this good news? Let's take a look again at what the angel says in verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So the good news is that a Savior, who is the Messiah and the Lord, has been born. Why is this good news? It's good news because these three titles are massively important. First, Savior meant Jesus was a rescuer and deliverer. Someone who had, been, who had the power to save sinners from the problem of sin. No great person had ever been able to do this before. And Messiah meant Jesus was the long-awaited king who would deliver God's people from their enemies and rule and reign forever in perfect power and authority. All throughout the Old Testament, every Israelite king tried and failed to rule with perfect power and authority. This feat had never been done before. And Lord, that just meant Jesus was God, God with us, Emmanuel. I don't need to explain to you that that is a seriously big claim. This was massive news, not only for the shepherds, but for all people, even us today. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where 
There's nothing you can do and you've just got to trust that someone else will pull through for you. Gina and I experienced this at our wedding when we had it a year ago down in New South Wales. At the time, the borders were shut and barricaded off because of COVID. And we decided to order Krispy Kreme wedding donuts rather than a cake because I don't really like cake. But for all you city dwellers who take for granted Krispy Kremes at every 7-Eleven shop, there's only one place across the border. And it was at a service centre in Chindra. And they didn't even have the full range. So we, re so we really wanted these donuts. And we had to ask if there were any Queensland friends willing to buy them and pass them on over the border to my brother who was going to meet them there. A friend said yes and all was good. And my brother brought, home, brought them home the day before our wedding. But only realised when he got home that only half the donuts had been picked up. At this point we knew we were in some trouble. There was no way that Gina or myself had the time to drive over an hour there and over an hour back when it was already four o'clock before our wedding. And so long story short, we put our trust in another friend who met up at the border with a crispy green guy who'd made the mistake. And the donuts were transported and secured in the late hours of the night while I was well and truly asleep. We were very thankful on the day that we had a complete donut tower. It would have been rather sad if we'd only had a small pile to work with. Now, this is just a small thing. We would have survived with a donut mound rather than a tower. But for the shepherds, their souls were on the line. When the glory of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, they knew they were in trouble. They knew what they were doing every time they pinched someone's stuff, and they knew that if someone didn't step, step in for them, they were going to get the punishment they rightfully deserved. But the relief they would have felt when the angel began to tell them the good news. God had been born into the world in Jesus, and had been born for them. Born to you, the angel said. This child was to be the shepherd's personal saviour and king. Although this announcement can't be restricted to only being for the shepherds, because not only do the, she do the angels say this good news that will bring great joys to all people, we also see in verse 14 that this good news will bring peace to all God's chosen people. Read with me from verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. This good news brought great joy and peace to all on whom God's favour rests. Or, in other words, all those who are chosen and called by God to be his people. This invitation isn't just for the shepherds, nor is it simply for the Jews. It's for all people, no matter who you are or what you've done. The message is that you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can find joy and peace and rest from the burdens of guilt and shame. No matter how flawed or sinful or corrupt or unworthy, no matter how much of a failure we think we are, no matter how unforgivable we think our past actions are, Jesus came, God in the flesh, to save us and deliver us from sin. One has come that will take our place 
and pay the price for our sin. Jesus comes so that we no longer have to fear death and judgment and hell. Jesus comes so that all peoples can now go, come to God without fear and experience a peace and a joy that will last forever. This is why an angel, surrounded by the glory of the Lord and accompanied by an army of angels of heaven, announces this news as good. So let's respond to the good news of this great and humble beginning in the same way that Mary and the shepherds respond in verses 15 to 20. As the shepherds seek out Jesus in a manger, let's seek out God this Christmas in his word by reading our Bibles. And let's spread this incredible news to everyone this Christmas, to family, friends, and work colleagues, just as the shepherds told everyone around them. But we've also got to take time this Christmas to slow down each day so we have space in our minds to ponder and consider this good news. Many of us are too familiar with it, so let's use Christmas to remind ourselves afresh of how incredible and life-giving this good news is. And finally, the shepherds went away glorifying and praising God for the good news that they had heard. Why don't we do the same? I'm cheering that this holiday is coming up. I'm keen to spend time at the beach. I'm excited to see family and hook into my dad's Christmas ham that he perfects every year. But even though all this is good news, it doesn't even come close to the good news that we've talked about this morning. So when we see the lights and the tinsel and the presents and the food and the family and the holidays, we can't forget that the good news of Jesus is at what's at the heart of Christmas. The good news of Jesus should stun us each and every day, but especially on Christmas. That God sent his son into the world to be my personal saviour and to be your personal saviour too is good news beyond anything that other Christmas celebrations offer. So if there's one takeaway today, I really hope each and every one of us will be reminded that we're sinners in need of a saviour and that Christmas is a celebration of the fact that the Saviour has come and is holding out salvation to all of us. So before we praise and glorify God together in song, let's pray to Him and thank Him for the good news of Jesus. Lord God, thank You so much for Jesus. Thank You that in Him You showed us what true greatness is like. Thank you that you don't choose based on merit, but instead you choose in grace, offering this incredible news of salvation to all of us here today. Please help us to really think about what you've revealed to us. Help us to see our own sin and unworthiness, but also in this to be held by the good news that we are forgiven. We pray all of these things, not in our own unworthy names, but in the worthy name of Jesus, our Saviour, Messiah and King. Amen.